Welcome to the premiere of Season 4 of Now I've Heard Everything, vintage interviews from the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s with some of the world's most fascinating personalities. The long-term future of the human species requires us to be in space, not for impractical reasons, but for the most practical reasons imaginable to safeguard the future of our species. Astronomer Carl Sagan. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. You know, let's be honest, sometimes we get so caught up in the minutiae of everyday life, trying to protect our own little piece of turf on this tiny little planet stuck in this huge, vast universe, sometimes we lose track of the big picture. And I mean the really big picture. Well, that's where people like Carl Sagan come in. With his book and TV show Cosmos, Carl Sagan introduced us to the vastness of the universe. Well, one of the universe, maybe there's more, who knows? And then in 1994, he published the follow-up book, Pale Blue Dot. And that's when I had the chance to meet him, actually for the second time in the early 90s. And yes, I just, you, you can't be in the same room with him and not be swept up by his just sheer, almost childlike enthusiasm for knowledge and finding out what's out there. And I couldn't help thinking as I was putting together this interview to use on this podcast today, as I was listening to it, how absolutely thrilled Carl Sagan would be today if he were able to take part in the James Webb Telescope that just got launched and which will tell us more than we've ever known before about what's out there. So anyway, here from 1994, Carl Sagan. It did occur to me how many millions of people who loved Cosmos and, and the book and the series will be saying, yes, Finally, the sequel. This is this is great. Does this pick up where Cosmos left off? It it does, and it gives a uh, a in a sense a wider perspective about where we are, our coordinates in space, the, uh, the spectacular findings of a spacecraft, largely American robotic spacecraft, sweeping through the solar system and now on their way to the stars, and then the the long term question of what is our relationship to space? Are we going to be living there? What is our future in space? That's that's a, a rough outline of what Pale Blue Dot is about. Stunning photographs just all throughout this book. The things that make you catch your breath and say, whoa, this is fantastic. <laughs> it is fantastic. And, and it all has come back, you know, bit by bit by from from these spacecraft and somehow never makes it to the evening news, never makes it to the newspapers. And... Uh, gorgeous stuff. And what's more, it's not just how magnificent these worlds are, but what they have to teach us about our own origins and also what dumb things not to do with our planet. There's a lot out there, and they are the possible future abodes for some of the human species. Although probably not for you and I. No, the time scale for humans uh, even exploring the near-Earth asteroids, say, or Mars... Uh, that's probably at least decades away. And as far as settlement goes, it's probably at least a century or two away. Is it inevitable, though? I think it is. The technology gets cheaper. The reasons, the practical, non-utopian, prudent reasons for humans being up there will get more and more obvious. And eventually we'll go. Maybe it won't be the United States. Maybe it'll be Japan or the Europeans or Russia or China uh, or a consortium of nations. But sooner or later, we'll be up there. 
I, I did wonder about that as you were just saying. It, it, I can't imagine once you see the, the pale blue dot, as it were, from space and realize there are no borders up there. You can't tell one country from the next. It's all people. And there's no Chinese. There's no Americans. There's no uh, cross-border rivalry. We are citizens of a dot looking to find another dot. The, the, that's right. Uh, the, the title, Pale Blue Dot, comes from the image of the Earth that I was so glad we were able to take. I had been wanting to do it for years. Uh, I was an experiment on the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft. Mm -hmm. Finally, we got beyond Neptune, then as now the outermost planet, and uh, could turn the cameras back to photograph where we came from. And there it was, this pale blue dot set against the background of more distant stars. And as you say, you couldn't see national boundaries. You couldn't even see continents and oceans, just that vulnerable blueness and that's where all of us in our whole history have ever been and and I think look at that look at the rivers of blood spilled by conquerors and generals and presidents and prime ministers so they could be the temporary masters of the corner of a dot it gives a kind of perspective to me it seems it says that we have to care for each other much better. There will be humans nowhere else in the universe. Maybe life, but not humans. And we must care for this planet, which is the only home we've ever known. I did, I have to confess to you, I did fear that once we finally get our act together on Earth and send spaceships out to explore new worlds, are we going to end up with somebody planting a flag? I claim this planet on behalf of planet Earth. And then somebody else comes along from some other planet and plants another flag on the other side, and we're going to just start the warfare all over again? Well, um, we have swept through the solar system. There is no sign of life anywhere else in the solar system, much less intelligent life. Uh, so I don't think we have to worry about that, at least for a while. I don't think we're going to have to worry about that ever for the following reason. You know, in Star Trek, there's this uh, Klingon scenario. You bump into another mm -hmm. species, and they are exactly at your own technological level. That is out of the question here, it, it, because civilizations are not going to uh, evolve lockstep. The most likely case is we come upon, or they come upon, uh, whichever way it goes, a civilization of very different technological attainments. And either we will be extremely... Uh, polite, uh, or we will be in trouble. <laughs> I, yeah, I, th I think the, the standard science fiction techno the, the, the scenario is that we conquer somebody else uh, because we're more sophisticated than they are, but we don't think, start to think that we might be the ants in somebody else's world. Uh, exactly. I mean, as far as, as radio communication, you know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence mm -hmm. using large radio telescopes, we're listening. We're not sending. And we're listening for a very good reason. Because anybody more backward than us can't communicate at all. We've just invented radio, radio physics, radio astronomy. And so we are probably the dumbest communicative civilization in a galaxy of 400 billion stars. Well, all of this is going to cost money. No matter who pays for it, it's going to cost money. And you have a great many people on this planet, not only in this country, but around the world, who think, why should we spend money on this that's not even going to benefit us or even our children or grandchildren, it's going to be many generations, we've got problems right now building roads and bridges and feeding people and, uh, and, and taking care of the immediate concerns. This is going to be outrageously expensive. Well, there's a lot of things I'd say about that. First of all, if the 
spacefaring nations coordinated their programs and worked on this together. And if we're not in a huge hurry, and I don't think there's any reason for us to be, we can make steady progress towards a clear goal without expanding the budgets of the space programs of the various nations at all. Secondly, I would like to see people who uh, are concerned about the pressing social needs. You, you point out, you're, of course you're right, we have dire needs in this country and elsewhere. I'd like them to address their attention not just to NASA with its $14 billion a year budget, but to the Department of Defense, which, when hidden costs are accounted for, has spends more than $300 billion a year in the post-Cold War era when the Soviet Union is gone, and we have not given a serious look at that. That's where the money is if we want to fix up our country. Can we take something like the Strategic Defense Initiative and use it for perhaps asteroid deflection purposes or something like that? Well, here's an interesting point. No, no, I think uh, uh, SDI itself has, has uh, essentially no technologies that are that are relevant for that. But it is certainly true, as the impact of Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 with the planet Jupiter last summer, last July, reminded us that planets get hit by asteroids and comets. And a big asteroid or comet could simply wipe out the global civilization. Uh, 65 million years ago, a really big comet, 10 kilometers across, hit the Earth and destroyed the dinosaurs and 75% of all the species of life then on Earth. So this is not a trivial idea. This is something really serious. And there is no way to protect ourselves, first of all, if we don't know what's out there. We have to inventory those objects, and we're not yet doing it. And secondly, we have to know how to deflect. And the present best method for deflection seems to be standoff nuclear explosions. And that means that there is a use for nuclear explosions uh, uh, in this respect. It is, however, a very dangerous double-edged sword for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but that aside, here is an example, and there are many others, of why the long-term future of the human species requires us to be in space. Not for utopia, not for blue sky, not for uh, impractical reasons, but for the most practical reasons imaginable to safeguard the future of our species. After this short break, Carl Sagan speculates on who might volunteer to go to new worlds. back to my 1994 conversation with Carl Sagan. You do close the book with a kind of a poignant uh, picture of uh, civilizations in the future on some other planet, thinking back fondly on their long-ago ancestors on fragile planet Earth and how close we came to, to being, becoming extinct before we finally escaped the bounds of this planet to explore new worlds. You see, it's, it's a step into a new, into a new environment that for all practical purposes goes on forever. It's an epical moment in human history when we step off the earth and, and keep going. It, it's as significant as when our amphibian ancestors 500 million years ago crawled out onto the land and when our primate ancestors a few million years ago uh, came out of the trees. It's the in, in, occupation of a new environment that uh, changes things forever. And whatever our pace, however much it fits and starts and two steps forward and one step back, 
the time we're living in is the time when we're taking that step into the cosmic ocean. In the long historical perspective, that may be beyond uh, GATT and who is the Speaker of the House and all of that. That may be what our epoch is remembered for. I, about a couple of thousand years ago, if I were to get on a, a, a crudely built ocean-going vessel and take my chances and sail in that direction where I might sail off the end of the earth or I might find something else, at least I had a reasonable expectation that I'd be finding something similar to what I was leaving. There'd there, there be a land that I could breathe the air, that there might be creatures there. That, but if you're heading off to a whole other planet, I mean, you, there's not going to be air that you can breathe. There's going to be the, the, the whole landscape is going to be different. Night and day are going to be different. Everything is going to be, it's going to be totally alien, is it not? No, I wouldn't say totally. If you take a look at those pictures of Mars that uh, Vikings sent back in 1976, it looks like Nevada or Utah or Arizona. Uh, it's not uh, weird and wildly unfamiliar. A few thousand years ago, if you were setting off for somewhere else, you could do so only by great dependence on technology, sailing ship technology, all the instruments and tools that you took with you to build houses, all of that. Today, the problem is similar. We cannot do it without technology. It's a more sophisticated technology, but the human spirit is exactly the same. We are tool users, and back millions of years ago, when our species and genus just started out, we were using tools then, stone tools, fire. That was the secret of our success. We are a technological species, and in the future, of course, we'll continue to be technological. And the pace at which we invent new tools is increasing almost daily, isn't it? It is, and that's part of uh, this double-edged sword business. Our technology has now reached formidable, maybe even awesome, proportions. And at the same time, we live in an extremely fragile environment. The thickness of the Earth's atmosphere compared to the size of the Earth is about the same as the thickness of a coat of shellac on a big schoolroom globe. And the ozone layer, if we're brought down to the pressure and temperature of an ordinary room or an aircraft cabin, is about three millimeters thick. There's not much of it there, and yet that's all that stands between us and the deadly ultraviolet light from the sun. So if we don't watch what we're doing, just the ordinary course of, of our technology intended for benign purposes can do us in. We are so powerful now that we have to have a degree of wisdom commensurate with our power. Do you believe there is a drive inside each human being to find new worlds? I think because we, uh, we live for so much of our history, I mean, everything, all those millions of years, except for the last 10,000 years of civilization, which is a kind of, you know, sedentary hiatus, uh, that it must be built into us. And, and uh, uh, maybe in men a little bit more than, than women, but uh, at least I, I think many, many people feel the, the urge to explore, the urge to wander, and the earth is all explored. There's nowhere to go. And at this moment, the same technology that has permitted us to explore the Earth now permits us to explore other worlds. And I think once we're out there, once a few of us are doing this exploration, and the rest of, it, of us can experience it with the, uh, virtual reality and other techniques, we will recognize in ourselves the emotional resonance, how good it feels 
to be exploring other worlds. We caught a whiff of that with Apollo. What great courage it's going to take for the first people to leave Earth to go live on some other planet or some other world, because likely as not, they'll never get back to Earth. I believe that you'll have to swat people away. I think the mo you'll be amazed at how many extremely capable people will be volunteering to do that. I think uh, that's extremely clear. If it were possible, would you? Oh, if I could take my wife Annie and my children with me, sure. There has been a uh, kind of conceit worldwide, transculturally, in human history that we are at the center of the universe, that the universe was made for us. And uh, that's very satisfying, you know. It gives, gives you a real feeling of importance, the whole universe made for you. The finding of modern astronomy is that we live on a small and insignificant planet circling an obscure sun, which is one of 400 billion other suns that makes up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of about a hundred billion other galaxies that makes up the universe, which, according to a uh, now fashionable idea in, in cosmology, is one of a very large number, maybe an infinite number, of other closed-off universes. Now imagine how monumental the conceit is that we living on this mode of dust are at the center of the universe and the reason there is a universe. I think part of growing up is to recognize our true circumstances in this vast and awesome cosmos. Sure makes you rethink the significance of the Super Bowl, doesn't it? <laughs> Carl Sagan died in 1996. He was just 62. And you can find easy Amazon links to Carl Sagan's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with another quite famous astronomer these days, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'd like to believe that the universe is actually accessible on almost any level, no matter your background, no matter your age. There are elements of it that you can carry with you through the day and become enlightened for having done so. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. This week, we've launched Season 4 of Now I've Heard Everything, so you can hear, hear all of our episodes, Seasons 1, 2, and 3, at HeardEverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything... Back in the 1980s, she was at the very center of one of the most controversial child custody cases in American history, and her case actually established some legal precedents for surrogate motherhood. My 1989 interview with the mother of baby M, Mary Beth Whitehead. I was put out there and I was punched in the nose and then asked to win a beauty contest. And that's basically what they did. They took my child away and then said, act normal. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>